Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, August 14th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, here with my guest, Heyman Hakimi. Heyman Hakimi is a legal advocate with the law offices of Michelle Ortega in Long Beach, California. Today we will be talking about individualized education programs and the rights of special education students. Welcome, Heyman. Thank you for having me, Terry. You're quite welcome. Thank you for being with us. Heyman, in a very general sense, can you please tell us what you do as a legal advocate in the special ed area? Yes. Uh, in the special ed area, parents are seeking services and supports from their local school district, which is the local educational agency in each city. So what we do as a service is we represent parents and we advocate for their child in the terms of the needs that each child has. So obviously every child has a different set of circumstances, a different set of needs, and all of them are very unique in that form. So. Our job and our duties are to, number one, educate our, our clientele and our parents that come to us in order to for them to understand exactly what is out there for their child. Some children don't respond very well to certain services. Others do. A lot of those services are definitely available from the local educational agency in the school district. However, without the questions being asked and the inquiries being made by the parents, those services in most instances will not be brought up um, initially by the school district. So what we try to do is, number one, we try to educate our parents to understand that they do have rights, they do have the ability to ask questions and, and provide the district to provide services for their child. And number two, what we try to do is we want to look at each individual child as their own individual member in the educational system. So we try to develop a system for them that they can access the curriculum appropriately and they can make as much progress educationally, socially, and overall as possible. All right. And is it or or why is it that the special education arena is a particularly challenging discipline, especially these days? Well, the way that the special education arena is set up is that there's a lot of instructions being given to parents. And in my opinion and in my experience, I think that is actually the wrong way to go about it. I think obviously the parent, and I tell all of our clients this as well, 
the parent is the most educated individual on their child's needs and the one person that's able to sit in the form of, of multiple individuals and tell them, listen, this is what my child's needs are. If the specific child has behaviors, these are the antecedents of that behavior. If the specific child has some medical allergies or the specific child responds better to women than men in a therapy session, those are all information that is so important for these school districts to have. Unfortunately, the way that the special education arena is set up today is that the IEP document is a public document for everyone to discuss. A lot of school districts are worried about the service model if a parent procures a lot of services, which means speech and OT and, and gets a fundamental program. Obviously, in our community, parents speak to one another and, and have forums. Um, when it becomes one parent talking to another, which obviously in the community of autism is, is, is a great resource that parents do have, is to be able to communicate with one another about their experiences, then it becomes a school district having a large population of parents knocking on their door looking for extended services. In this area of law, a lot of parents are running into the resistance from a school district about budget issues. And that's the number one thing um, I think a lot of parents need to understand, and, and we'll cover later, um, that, that budget issues are one fundamental identification that school districts make when a parent requests for services, saying that, you know, the budget issue is compacting our ability to do these things. And obviously, when your child is in the school system from the age of 4 to 22, which is the status in a special, for a special education student, then it becomes a long, long relationship that you have with the school district. And because you have to build that relationship and develop it, then you're going through significant hurdles trying to get to a point where you feel like this IEP document is fundamentally meeting your child's needs. Therefore, when we're looking at the challenging area in the discipline, it is the biggest challenge is for you as a parent and as a community to be able to bring the information necessary to a school district and place it on the table and in the form of identification and discussions so that you as a parent can identify, I am requesting these services. However, the reason I'm requesting them is because these are based on standardized testing and scoring and a lot of observations done by, done by individuals that are trained and credentialed to observe my child and our psychologists, our clinical psychologists, neuropsychologists, um, licensed speech and language pathologists, a lot of that is where the resistance comes because this information, without it being presented to the school district, the school district is really looking at it as a template for each child, which unfortunately, as we know, that's, prob that's not the right approach because each child has a different set of needs. So you mentioned budget, and I would think that legally, according to the laws that are in place, budget cannot be a roadblock to the legitimate needs of an individual student. And is, what, is that correct? And is what your uh, firm does, what you do, uh, prevent school districts uh, or local educational agencies, and please differentiate between them, arguing with the parents about the child's legitimate needs until the child is 22 and well, doesn't, you know need yes. the same well, things they needed at four years old, but you're arguing with them for 18 years? Well, well, Terry, see, that's the, the, the biggest 
misconception or myth that's out there, um, and a lot of parents have not had the ability to get the information necessary. Now, the way this process is set up and special education funding is set up is that this is federal monies. Mm-hmm. So this federal bank um, of reserve is set there specifically for special education services and supports. Now, I tell our clients all the time when we sit in these IEP meetings, when a school district brings up the fact that we're having budget cuts and we're cutting teachers and we're laying off teachers and we just do not have the, the, the budget in order to provide these supports for your child, that is accurate when we're speaking of a general education student. That is accurate when we're speaking of a general education student needing access to textbooks or when a local badminton team, the high school badminton team or the high school golf team is no longer able to be supported because of the funding. Now, that is absolutely not the truth when it comes to special education and it comes to the IEP document. The the funding that comes from the federal government is a bank that does not change at all. That money is there, and it's there as a pot for the school, for your local school district to be able to use those resources to meet your child's needs. Now, when we're looking at the chain of command here, when we're looking at these federal funds, these federal funds are allocated to each respective school district standing alone. So, for example, our office is in Long Beach, and we border a lot of Orange County cities. So Long Beach has its own school district. Long Beach is responsible for every child that has an IEP document or special needs within the city boundaries, um, and they are identified. Same thing with Orange County. We have Huntington Beach. We have Newport Beach locally. These two districts are separate and, and stand on their own. Their funding is also standing on itself. So therefore, these districts' job and their responsibility for parents is to seek out individual children that have special needs, identify them, and that's how you, the, the, the form of the IEP document is. They identify them with the form of the IEP document, identify what their needs are, and provide a program for them that's individual and individualized in order to meet their needs. Now, the biggest question that you asked, and I think the most important answer to that is, there are a lot of parents that end up coming into the system at four years old um, because the way that the system is set up is that your regional center is responsible for your child's needs from the ages of when they're born to three years old. But that's a California thing, that's right? That's a California thing. So, so that is unique to California. And um, how? so what would be the case for someone who's listening from Missouri? The important take-home message would be that there's federal funds available, and budget is really an irrelevant word in an IEP meeting. Exactly. Regardless of what state you're in, um, and obviously I don't, I'm not specialized in other states, so I wouldn't want to give advice on that. However, wh- when we're talking about the budget and federal funding, that's inclusive for every single state. It doesn't matter where you are, how small or big your state is, or where you reside. The budget issue and the excuse for these school districts, for lack of a better word, to identify that they don't have the budget is a completely inaccurate and has n- absolutely no place in the discussion of an IEP meeting. So when, so when a parent is at an IEP meeting and they say the B word of best, which is, I hear, a no-no because they're not required to provide best, the school district isn't required to provide best, so the parents have this no-no B word best, 
And then the school district has this no-no B word of budget. Exactly. The, the, biggest, the biggest obstacle that parents run into is, is two things, like you said. Obviously, as a parent, you want the best for your children, and you want them to be educated in the most appropriate support setting, and you want them to be able to thrive. Now, unfortunately, when the school district looks at your child, they're looking at, and we'll get into this later, but when they're looking at the legal aspect, all they're looking at is a basic floor of opportunity to provide for your child. And that's irregardless of any state, is the basic identification of your child as a basic floor of opportunity. So the district will always tell these parents that we don't have to provide your child with the best program or in a lack of a better term, they call it the Cadillac program. All we have to do is provide your child with the basic floor of opportunity in or, and give them the basic resources in order to allow them to be accommodated within a classroom and a social arena within the playground and the classroom settings. But so as a parent, obviously, that's a huge initiation of frustration because parents are looking and saying, listen, I have my child here in the school. My child has special needs that are different than any other child here. Therefore, I need supports, accommodations that are fundamentally sound for him or her in order to make the progress that they need to make. And that's where the biggest area of frustration comes for parents, in my experience, is that they're saying these districts are just looking at my child like and throwing him in a classroom and allowing him to fail. And my answer to that is that, as a parent, your sense of frustration is clear, and it's actually very accurate. However, as a parent, in order to advocate for your child, that's what's so important to understand the resources that you have, the steps that you can take, and how the federal budget that's sitting there waiting um, you can use as a resource for yourself and your child in order to identify that your child does need these significant needs and does need these supports as well. So I guess that's where we're going to get later into, I would assume, the word appropriate in free appropriate public education. I like, Cayman, how you uh, said in essence earlier that parents are the experts on their own children. They, they are their own children's 24-7 observers. Uh, and could, before we go to break, can you identify uh, for our listeners the difference between a local educational agency, LEA, LEA, and the school district, you used both of them earlier. Are they synonymous? or? Yes. The, the local education agency is my, my legal lingo that I use. That's identified in the Ed Code and the IDEA, which is the Individual Disabilities Education Act, which is the fundamental law that governs the area of special education. So the school district and the LEA are essentially the same, the same standing body. Obviously, as a as a parent, you're looking at that agency as the agency that's responsible for your child's education. So when we're looking at these agencies, they are identified by LEAs, but in the, in the same sense, that's synonymous with your school district where you're residing. All right. We're going to take a break here. Thank you for providing that explanation. And we'll be right back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Heyman Hakimi. Thank you to our sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Are you looking for a 21st century first aid kit? You don't have to suffer nor take on the increasing expense of health care. Tune in to Good Vibrations. Catch the wave to better health. Your host, Lynn Waldrop, will show you how many common and even uncommon aches, pains, and ills can be remedied through sound, color, and light. While it may sound like these are new concepts, believe it or not, these are actually ancient methods that still make sense today. Create a healthy life. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Heyman Hakimi, a legal advocate with the law offices of Michelle Ortega in Long Beach, California, and we're talking about, among other things, individualized education programs, better known as IEPs, and the rights of special education students, as differentiated from general education. And we talked about a couple of B words in the first segment. We talked about budget and how that's really not an appropriate word for the school district to bring up in an IEP meeting. We talked about the word best and how the school district doesn't like parents to bring up that word in an IEP meeting. And then I'm going to add another B word to the conversation, and that is the word babysitting. So, Heyman, you were talking about, and uh, rightfully so, how parents are the best experts on their children, and we also, and how parents um, notice that their children may need additional accommodations in addition to the school district just providing this floor of opportunity that you mentioned in the first segment, not just a place to babysit the kids. Uh, and you don't want to be arguing about what your child needs and what's validated by assessments, which we'll talk about some more, until the child is 22 years old and didn't benefit from what they needed for the last 18 years because you were arguing about it. So you help families with the IEP process. Why is it crucial for a family to embark upon this at first with an experienced advocate? Well, that's a good question, Terry, because, again, like you said, a parent does not want to spend 18 years fighting with the school district each and every year because the way these IEP documents are set up, as, as your listeners, as parents, 
I'm sure know, is that you have an annual IEP each year, which is set up for the IEP team, which is the school district, speech and language pathologists, all the, the individuals that are working with your child and yourself to meet in a setting and discuss the progress um, that your child has made. So during this meeting, you're talking about goals, you're talking about objectives, the service model, and how much progress your child has made towards the goals that have been set within the year. So when you're looking at the IEP document, why this is so crucial for parents to be, I think it's, it's more that parents to be educated and the parent to be to understand exactly when they're walking into the room what they should be asking for and the rights that they do have. So in order to do that, I think with an experienced advocate or, or counsel, um, that the goal, at least our goal, and, and what should be everyone's goal as an advocate for their child, is that you want to walk into that room, and when you leave that room, you have a document in your hand, which you feel for the next year at least will be smooth sailing for you and will have an understanding of every time you re resort back to it to kind of get an update on where your child is at, you can look at the first goal and say he's met that goal or he's progressing towards that goal or I think by the end of the year he'll make it to where we need him to be to move forward. So when you're looking at this document, if the document is not set up right, and when I say set up right, that's very important to understand because goals and objectives that are drafted within this document are what drives your child's education and your child's progress. Unfortunately, when these goals and objectives sometimes are set so very low that your child has already done three of the objectives, three of the four objectives that are set in the year, and they already have that skill, then when you come back at the end of the year and your child is essentially still doing the same things that he was doing at the beginning of the year, that's a sense of frustration for a parent. So when you're looking at drafting these goals, it needs to be very, very important for those goals to be set at a standard where your child can achieve those goals by making the progress towards them. So, for example, if your child is a younger child and is working on their letters, and during your IEP they have 10 letters already down and you're working on the remaining 16 letters, then it should not be an addition of four or five letters to the 10 that he already knows. Unfortunately, a lot of ways that the IEPs are set up is that the standard is so low for these goals that your child is obviously going to achieve these, and the school district team will look at you and say, well, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, um, listen, your, parent, your, your child hasn't met the goals that we set. So you need to look at this as going in there with the experienced advocate or counsel to set up this document for you so that it ensures that you don't have to fight every single year for 18 years. And you can ensure progress. And obviously, all of us as parents want our children to be as fully included into general education setting as possible. And that would be the goal with this document. However, if it's not set up the correct way, that we would never reach those goals. And that would just be, again, a sense of frustration for parents. And worse off, your child won't be making the progress that they're so very capable of. Okay, so you're not just looking at fighting for things to overcome your child's challenges, like if a parent wanted adaptive physical education, but you're also ensuring that your child's IEP goals will, um, will best utilize their capabilities. So we'll set... Uh, 
progressive benchmarks for them to reach for with accommodation. Exactly, because in my opinion, those two sets of of things are very different. One, you're looking at the IEP document and you're looking at the goals and objectives that are developed within the document for you to understand what's going on in the educational setting. So that means that the teacher and the staff and the support staff are working on these goals on a daily basis. Now, your service model, which is also within the IEP document, which is called Designated Instructional Services, acronym is DIS, would be your services such as occupational therapy, um, speech and language, adaptive physical education, your ABA services. When you're looking at those services, I believe, in my opinion, those are outside of your goals. Those services drive progress as well. However, if your goals aren't tailored for the amount or duration of services that you have, then the child is just sitting in the room with a speech and language pathologist, and the speech and language pathologist can report to you that your child is doing a plethora of things. However, if it's not formally written and it's not followed based on those goals and objectives that we spoke about, then how can we determine if the progress is actually there or not, regardless of the service model? Okay, so say you have a goal on the IEP. Child will be able to communicate what hurts. Uh, And the school district goes about it with saying the child is being given PECS cards, picture exchange communication system cards, to explain what hurts. This is hypothetical. I don't know if this is a, this actually happens to anybody out there. Um, but the child's not getting the hang of PECS. But they might get the hang of communicating what hurts if they were using rapid prompting method. Mm-hmm. Is it the responsibility of the school district to provide a way that to, that that child will be able to meet that particular goal no matter what that way might be. Maybe they can't talk. Maybe speech therapy is not going to do it for them, but maybe um, rapid prompting method will. Mm-hmm. That's a great question, actually, of course, and that's what, that's what your goal is indicative of because when the goal is drafted, um, you used a good example. I've had that happen uh, a lot where the child does not respond well to the PECS card or to, to the actual physical manipulative. So, you know, a lot of parents in now in days, days and days of technology have seen that their children react very well and make progress with the use of the iPad. So the iPad has um, a lot of different supports and it has a lot of applications that can be used for children. So whatever the accommodation is or whatever the tool is necessary for your child to be able to access the language or whether the communication model, that's what needs to be identified within the goals and needs to be identified within your IEP document. So if the school district is using something that might be, you know, a little or a lot less advanced than what your child needs or can be very fossilized in the terms of using a manipulative that is old car- a set of old PEX cards where clearly there's a lot of different technology that are very updated and advanced and have proven through research that are very effective for children with autism. If those services and those technologies are not being used, your job as a parent is to identify that, listen, I'm, I understand you guys are using these cards, however my child is not reacted well to them and the progress is not identified within any part of that goal. So we need to look at alternative methods. 
and we just need to look at alternative support systems and technology. But again, if your goal isn't written with the use of the PEX card, then you can't go back as a parent and say, listen, we've used the, the, the PEX card for a year now or two years now, or we use the manipulative for three years now, and I don't see the progress that needs to be done. In the home setting, we're using an iPad or these different devices, and he's making great progress in the home setting. And that's what you want to do as a parent is to generalize everything for your child so that they have that constant form of communication, whatever it may be, because that's what's going to really give you your progress and consistency. Mm-hmm. So you go in first with parents uh, initially, and then you equip parents to eventually take over. Yes, with with any, regardless of our services, with any advocate or legal counsel that parents use, I want all of them to understand that you as a parent need to be equipped to be able to take over and advocate, self-advocate for your child. So whoever is representing you or you've, you're using as your advocate, please ensure that they're providing you with everything that they're writing to the school district, whether it's a form of a missive or a letter, um, emails. You should always be CC'd on emails that are being sent to your school district, to your special education director. A lot of correspondence that's written um, during these processes is following the IEP, and this is, again, something I don't think we touched on, but it's very important, that following your IEP, everything should be put in writing in the form of a document oral identification and you saying you had a tape recorder within the IEP meeting, while they're great resources to have, those are not going to get you in a position to say you've been requesting services for a while and the district is just not responding to you and now you're forced to form a, file a formal complaint or whatever it is that you need to do moving forward. So as a parent, please please make sure that whoever your representative is is sending you the letter after before they send it off so you can review it, so you can understand the language that's being used in it, so you can see why they're taking that angle. So in a year from now when our services are no longer there or the parent is moving forward to self-advocate, they don't have to keep con- continuing to come back and ask questions and have someone else do the work for them. They would have a sample there for them that the language is there where they can take and they can apply it to whatever their their concern is with the school district. So that's the most important piece when you do have an advocate or counsel is that they should be educating you through the process and teaching you how to do this on your own rather than keeping it from you so that you can continue to come back to them year after year after year. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right, and we will be right back here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Heyman Hakimi. Thank you to our sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Cancer is not something to be taken lightly. But instead of being talked at by doctors, medical providers, and others, wouldn't it be nice to hear from a host who has worked at the cancer coalface for 38 years as a caregiver, supporter for 14,000 patients, and who has had the experience of having a life-threatening condition herself? You will hear the stories of survivors and other people who work in breakthrough cancer medicine. Navigating the Cancer Maze with host Grace Goller will help you with the facts, planning, and grief experienced with different forms and stages of cancer. Listen every Friday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
In your family, what is most important to you? Is it health? Relationships? How about getting along better with your kids or your parents? Maybe it has to do with losing pounds or gaining financially. Whatever the problems you face in your family, you'll want to tune in to Family First with your host, author, and speaker, Randy Rolfe. Since 1985, Randy has become the foremost expert on matters concerning the family, and she can help you. Family First airs live every Friday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you know the four major principles to healthy living? If we incorporate these principles in our everyday decisions, we could all live better and healthier lives. Tune in to The Joys of Healthy Living with your host, Dr. Ed Dodge. By tuning in each week, you can learn about the four principles for healthy living and how to incorporate them into your life. Dr. Dodge and his guest experts will share tips and discoveries from every aspect of health. The Joys of Healthy Living is broadcast live every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Heyman Hakimi, a legal advocate with the law offices of Michelle Ortega in Long Beach, California, talking about individualized education programs and other things related to getting what your child needs in the way of services from the school district. So, Heyman, we were talking about, you know, things that might help one particular child. Uh, I know it. A, uh, an individual who started to communicate at 14 years old through rapid prompting method and then was able to, uh, through the use of a light writer, give a commencement speech in high school and is now an author, as a matter of fact, though nonverbal and significantly impacted by autism. But they were helped by RPM. Uh, another girl who's an author also was helped by rapid prompting method. When, uh, when my child was younger, I went to a legislative meeting with a friend uh, whose son was helped by Sunrise, and uh, they were using that that Cadillac argument. But what happens if you come up against the argument, oh, something isn't uh, validated in double-blind, peer-reviewed, placebo-controlled studies? I mean, my friend just, you know, wrung her hands, in essence, and said, I've got the kid. And that kid, through rigorous psychological testing, was eventually declassified from autism. So it helped him. What do you do when you come up against these arguments? Well, the most important piece, went, and that's a great point, is that a lot there is a lot of jargon being given to parents, unfortunately, meaning that when you're in the form of an IEP meeting and you're asking for services, unfortunately, they're looking at your child just the same way they're looking at the other 1,000 children that have an IEP within the school district. And that obviously is not the correct way to approach each child because each child has different needs. Some children are verbal, others are nonverbal. Some children have maladaptive behaviors, others don't. Some children respond well to discrete trials. Some children respond well to uh, ABA methods. It's, it's all based on your child's needs and the services that, that you believe and are shown to be appropriate and, and prove that they can provide progress. So a, a, great, a big thing the district likes to, to use is, like you said, that's not peer-reviewed research, or that's a re- recommendation that's made that's wonderful, 
but it's also a recommendation that's made that shouldn't be provided by an education in an educational setting, or that's a service you need to look outside of of the school district for. Now, to answer your question, the way that a parent needs to get around these questions, especially the peer-reviewed research, is ex- is to look at it as evidentially based and say, I understand there might not be as much peer-reviewed research as you'd like. However, we're looking at my child as, as a single scope and as an individual. And that's why the IEP document is called an Individualized Education Program. So with my child's needs being individualized and me, me as a parent identifying that there, there are these needs and these are the reactive strategies in order to use and interventions in order for them to make the progress. And I also have outside evaluations, which we'll get to, that are also identifying significant and individualized recommendations for my child that are recommending that this service or support or strategy is used. And that's based on an individual identification of my child based on hours of standardized testing and classroom observations and home observations and a summary of what that specific individual identified for my child. Okay. And also earlier... um you mentioned that the school district is worried about uh, IEPs being public documents, and if one parent gets it, something for their child, then another parent is going to want it. And they're not looking at the kids as individuals; they're, you know, looking at them all with Lincoln's head. They're looking at them all at, like Lincoln uh, on the penny or something. Uh, but there's something called a 504. Uh, what's the difference between that federal legislation? And IDEA, for example, under 504, if it is medically indicated by a doctor with doctor substantiation that your child has to be on a gluten-free, casein-free diet for lunch at school, the school has to provide that. The school district has to provide it. They have to provide the separate cookware. They have to provide the non-cross-contaminated surface, et cetera. What's the difference? What are the differences in those laws? The difference in the the 504 plan and the IEP document are are twofold. First off, the IEP document is not a special education document or support. The 504 plan is identified for accommodations, supports for children that identified by the school district to have a less less identification of needs than a child a child that would be on an IEP. So children, we have clients that are on 504 plan that may need to be tested outside of the classroom because of the noise level, some auditory processing issues. Or they may need to be given an extra 15 minutes to an hour to test when it comes to multiple choice testing. Preferential seating is another one in a 504 plan. And as you mentioned, medical necessity um, is also huge within a 504 plan. For example, I had I just had a client um, a couple months ago that had Wolf-Hirschman syndrome, and mom was very astute and bringing a lot of research to the IEP with her, and this was her supposed to be her initial IEP. A lot of research, a lot of reading material for the school district, over a, about four or five hundred pages on what the what actually the basis of Wolf-Hirschman is, what they need to look out for, and the things that they completely need to avoid in order to prevent her seizures um, and a lot of the congenital issues that she had going on. Now, I'm sitting next to mom while she's presenting this information, and all I see is the entire 
school district staff just funneling the paper underneath the, their briefcases or the paper that they had in front of them, I did not see one individual even look at the description that was there. Now, clearly, they, they may have looked at it later on, which I'm not making accusations. However, I think that when you have a child with significant medical needs and you have a child that has individual needs, whether it be medical or whether it be a diet, then the 504 plan is, is dedicated for you to identify those things. However, a parent needs to be very, very careful in the wording that's presented in a 504 plan because, again, the 504 plan is not a special education document, and that looks that's presented as an accommodations page. So a lot of times that's overlooked case in point, this example that I'm giving you is that about two weeks later, after we had this prolonged two and a half hour meeting that was significantly based on you can't you cannot put this child in the sun that's past eighty degrees, you cannot feed this child specific foods, you cannot have this child in a in a closed setting and this child needs to be doing physical exercises in the air conditioned room, uh four and a half seizures later we're looking at the school district saying, sorry, we no one really read the document. So oh when you're looking at these issues, these are huge for parents. And I, I think personally and based on my experience, the medical piece of these children's needs is significantly disregarded or not. the, the attention is just not there. These districts are looking at, well, what about speech or OT or what does the classroom setting look like? While there's significant medical needs that also need to be addressed, and those are even more important because the child needs these things medically and in order to be able to be successful and actually be there in school rather than being in the hospital and missing classes and, and not being able to attend in these social settings in the playground. So. The, the reason the IEP document, I would advise parents to use that more than a 504 plan when they have children that have these medical needs um, is because the individual education program is a document that, that has to be legally followed by the school district whenever there's accommodation or support in there. The 504 plan obviously has to be followed as well. However, I have noticed in my experience that the 504 plan is not v taken very seriously in these settings when it comes to these significant medical needs or, or diet needs, whereas at least the IEP will give you the legal document that they have to follow. Now, regardless, again, we're going back to our conversation about how a parent needs to make sure that they're detailed in this document and they identify all the significant needs of the child and what the repercussions would be of these, these medical needs not being met as well. Okay, so you can put the gluten-free, casein-free diet, the peanut-free environment, and the uh, nurse availability due to uh, the seizures issue, you can put all those in an IEP? Yes, all those should be in an IEP. If you, and I tell all of my parents, if you have a child that's medically fragile and the, you or the school district has assigned them a nurse, you need to write in there, what happens if the nurse catches a cold and is out for a week? What happens if the nurse... Um, gets into a car accident and can't make it to that specific on that specific day. Who's going to be your backup? Who is going to be the individual that understands your child's medical needs? The, the IEP document needs to be very, very finite and detailed, and the parent should not walk out of an IEP without being fully, fully comfortable with the fact that all of their children's needs are being met, not just the speech and the OT, because unfortunately the school district will focus on those things. And in the terms of these discussions, the medical needs a lot of times get put in the background, and 
you're not looking at the supports that need to be necessary there. So, for example, when you have an IEP, there should be a, a, a box that you can check that says your child has medical needs. Under that, if there isn't a place for you to write it, I would place it in a notes page or follow it up with a, with a formal writing identifying what your child's medical needs are, the interventions that need to be in place, and the repercussions if those aren't there, whether it be food, gluten-free, peanut-free, whether it be, again, like this instance when the child has seizures and they need to be kept away from certain areas, those accommodations need to be, need to be written in your IEP. As a parent, please don't look at the IEP as it being a box-heavy document. When I say box-heavy, meaning... Your IEP document, whether wherever you are, whether you're in California or another state, the IEP document, usually the way they're based is that there's boxes for, you, for the school district to check. So the child has speech and language needs check. The child has occupational therapy needs check. The child has sensory needs check. The child has medical needs check. But under that check, there's followed by another check. So the unfortunate part about that and why I say it's box heavy is because Obviously, a check mark is wonderful, but it doesn't identify the child's unique needs in that specific area. So if the child has medical needs, it could be anything from something very basic to something significant, like this individual that we're speaking of in my example. So take the please handwrite whatever you need to do, wherever you feel like that is will get the attention of whoever's reading this document. Handwrite what your children's medical needs are. Handwrite what they cannot eat. Handwrite where they should not be. Handwrite that they have seizures and the duration and the frequency of them occurring. Please handwrite these things. Put them in a formal writing after the IEP is over. Send them to the school principal. Send them to your special ed director. Send them to the teacher so that everyone has a copy of all this documentation. And one more thing before we go to break, Heyman. Um, there across the country in public schools, uh, there are horror stories about children who have been disciplined and restrained in inhumane ways, even to the point of death. Can you put in an IEP that you do not want your child restrained, uh, et cetera? Well, first off, there should be there should be no school district in the country that's restraining children at this point. That's ridiculous, and based on the IDEA, should not be occurring. And based on the intervention models in the form of ABA and, and autism-based research, as the district would like to say, peer-reviewed research, restraint, restraint should not be implemented whatsoever. However, again, that's something that if, if a parent is suspicious of that occurring or is concerned about occurring, yes, identify that, document that, place it in writing. Again, I had another issue just recently where a, the child had um, autism, had behaviors related to it, was very aggressive, would throw his shoes, would kick. Obviously, the school district decided they, they placed he was in a general education class and they would put him in the quote-unquote quiet room all day long. Now, when the parent's evaluator went to observe this placement, she came back to me and she said, this is like a dungeon. I've never seen anything like this in my life. It's a janitorial closet. It's dark. There's nothing in there. They, they lock the kid in there. They close the door. There's one window. So mom at this point didn't even know this was occurring and came to me and said, so how, how often do you think they're doing this? And I said, well, look at the frequency and duration of his behaviors. It seems like this is their intervention model and there's nothing else going on. So until this evaluator actually observed this with her own eyes, mom and dad weren't even aware that this was occurring to their child on a daily basis. So I look at the IEP document and there's no identification of a parent's idea of what should be the intervention model once there are aggressive behaviors. Now, 
in my opinion, it shouldn't be parents' idea. That's the school district's responsibility. They need to develop a behavior support plan and a behavior intervention model in order to identify what needs to happen if this occurs and if the and the antecedent creates a situation that's dangerous for himself and others, then clearly the classroom can be evacuated. He can be taken to the playground to calm down for a walk. I mean, these are very, very common sense interventions, and I'm not a behaviorist in any way, but this is just common sense. So again, with your concern, I think it's a very valid concern because I, I have seen a lot of that recently. And these parents, you know, parents need to really, 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 really monitor their children and monitor what's going on during the day. Very good. And we'll be right back here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsors, Oxy Health and Superberries. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Have you figured out what's not working in your life? Could you use a little help? Join your host, Tamaran, for Let's Figure It Out. Tamaran has had both highs and lows in her life. She uses her experiences to teach you some basic techniques on how to live a better life through health, relationships, and more. Her guests also come from the health and wellness industry, and together, Tamaran and her guests will help you get your life on the right path. Let's Figure It Out airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Heyman Hakimi, a legal advocate with the law offices of Michelle Ortega in Long Beach, California. And Heyman, how do people contact you uh, if they have additional questions? Well, we do offer a free consultation for an hour. I always tell every parent that I meet to bring your IEP document in here, bring all of your assessments. Um, let me take a look at it. I try to give them as many tips as possible, but um, our contact information I can give out is area code 562-496-3292. Once again, 562-496-3292. And for your listeners as well, I'll give my, uh, I like to give my, my our clients or potential um, clients that want to just learn about the process and get some information free of charge. My direct cell phone number is 714-580-3214. Once again, it's 714-580-3214. So I encourage all parents um, to, you know, call me if you have any questions at any time. I, I'm always there. Um, regardless if you're a client or not, I try to do whatever I can to help our parents and our community because I know that information is key here. So um, please don't hesitate to call me at any time with any questions you have. If you're walking out of your IEP or you're walking into it and you just have a quick question or you need a tip, um, please feel free to call me. Well, thank you, Heyman. Now, it, a lot of parents feel intimidated and, uh, you know, not to their discredit. Maybe 
school systems try to make them feel uh, intimidated, but should a parent ever have fear of going into this process that they're going to be regarded as uh, a pain in, in whatever or a squeaky wheel or that retribution will be taken out on their child? That's a great point, and actually I've heard that so many times myself, and, and it really bothers me to hear that from a parent because I'm looking at these parents and I ask them all the time. I ask them a simple question. I said, do you pay your taxes? And they all answer to me. They say yes. And I say, okay, so your child is being educated in the school system where you're supporting based on your taxes, and this is federal money. If your child has specific needs, based on the IDEA and the way that the laws are written in any state, that the school district is supposed to accommodate your child's needs in an individualized manner within the individualized education program. So you as a parent, you are your child's voice. You are your child's advocate. You are your child's the person that's going to be able to, to, to develop your child into, into a standing member of society and someone to be successful. So I don't think parents should ever, ever, ever worry about intimidation or if there's going to be retribution or, or retaliation on their children because that would be them doing a disjustice to their child because if they don't speak up for their child, if a parent doesn't speak up, if a parent is not active with the school district, if the parent does not show the school district that – I'm very serious, um, I'm all about my child's needs, and I will advocate until my child turns 22 and you guys are no longer responsible. Those parents are the ones that get the private schools for their children, the, the ABA services, the Linda Mood Bell, the, the, um, the, occup the occupational therapy, the physical therapy, the, the extended services in the summer. Those are the parents that get those things. The parents that are worried and, and are reluctant to ask for things, obviously, never get the services because, in my opinion, a closed mouth does not get fed. And, and if you don't make noise, then a school district is never going to know you have a concern. And if parents disagree with a school district's offerings, what points are most important to know? What recourse do they have? What's the path they should follow? Well, if a school district, if a parent does not agree, the first thing for parents to understand and, and key thing is that they don't ever have to sign the IEP. I always recommend that our clients take the IEP home with them before they sign it, review it, go over it with someone they trust, whether it's an advocate or a psychologist, go over the language, read it over. If a parent does not agree with that, the services or anything that's within the IEP, the parent has a lot of recourse to, to be done. The parent can file, request an informal dispute resolution session, which can be done with the local school district and the special ed director as a sit-down meeting. The parent can file a formal due process complaint and actually be in a mediation session with a licensed judge um, through the Office of Administrative Hearings in California, which is OAH, and every state has their own respective uh, jurisdiction for that, um, and be in a mediation setting where they can identify their concerns to a third party, which is a judge. The judge is obviously not there to make a decision. They're there to mediate between the parties. But in special education, you have about a 95 to 99% chance of settling your claims and getting what you want through a school district within that setting. Um, and, again, the, the most important thing is that you do not have to consent. A lot of school districts will tell the parent, if you don't consent to this, we can't give, it to, we can't give you anything. That is not accurate and is misinformation. If you do agree with some parts of your IEP, for example, if you do agree with the speech model and you do not agree with the OT model and the placement, then you can consent to certain services and dissent to others. So, 
please be aware that as a parent, you do not have to take the IEP as a take-it-or-leave-it sort of document. You can consent to certain portions of it and dissent to the portions that you do not agree with. Okay, very good. And I know that we didn't get to talk about outside expert assessments in this hour, but maybe you can come back in the near future and we'll talk about them then? Of course, anytime. Well, Heyman, thank you so much for sharing all of this essential information with our listeners today. Of course. You're very welcome. And to our listeners, please don't forget to check out the MAPS, Medical Academy of Pediatric Special Needs Conference website at www.medmaps.org. The MAPS conference will be held in Orlando from September 27th through 29th. Thank you to this program's sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries, and to our listeners, Thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.